Hey everybody, this is your co-host and friend, Ellen Weatherford. You may have noticed that we didn't release an episode last Wednesday like we usually do, and if you follow us on social media, you may have seen our accompanying explanation, but if not, I want to take a quick moment to address it. Last week was a really heavy time for us in the United States, as I'm sure you're all aware of the demonstrations all over the country demanding justice for black lives lost to systemic racism. We didn't feel it was an appropriate time for us to be taking any attention away from the important conversations happening around that topic, so we took the week to step back. And I spent the week exploring some amazing hashtags on social media and lifting up the voices of black scientists and naturalists, including Black Birders Week, Black AF in STEM, Black in Nature, and Ask a Black Birder. They're all great, and I found like over 100 new people to follow, so I highly recommend. And if you're wondering what racial justice has to do with wildlife science, the simple answer is that we can't have science without the people doing the work. And because of racism, Black people face systemic obstacles to their careers, as well as threats to their safety that make doing that work inaccessible. For the longer, more nuanced answer, I encourage you to read through the stories and experiences shared by these scientists, not just for visibility, but to learn how you can help support making the world a kinder place. And with that, uh, please enjoy this week's episode. Thank you, everybody. Friends, this is Ellen Weatherford, and I'm here as usual with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast. And this week, I have a special guest who I normally introduce my guests as new friends, but you're a little less of a new friend. This is Benjamin Lancer. Say hi, Benjamin. Howdy, everyone. And if you have been listening to the show for a minute, you probably recognize the name Benjamin Lancer because you were the one who was so kind to share all of your awesome information about the Australian emerald dragonfly with us a few episodes ago. Yeah, yeah. So that's the uh, species I study myself. And this week, we're not talking about the dragonfly, even though that was a lot of fun and very mind-blowing. This week, we have another really cool animal that we're talking about. Before we dig into that, um, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and let our friends know who we're talking to? Yep. So as you said, my name's Benjamin Lancer. I'm a PhD student at the University of Adelaide in Australia. And my background is sort of combined psychology, neuroscience, animal behavior, all that stuff sort of sort of mixed into one um, with a bit of physiology thrown in. Um, I'm currently working in the visual physiology and neurorobotics laboratory studying dragonflies, which is why I first mentioned uh, dragonflies and, and gave you all that cool information for that episode. Um, but since I missed out on actually coming on the show for that one, I, I wanted to come on. And so I thought I would talk about one of my, I don't want to say favorite animals because I don't like showing favoritism. I love all animals, <laughs> but one of what I think is uh, one of the most interesting animals, the naked mole rat. So, so way back when, when, when we talked about the dragonfly, we were not doing guest episodes at that time. We just hadn't figured out the logistics. It was like not on our menu at the time. And then also you're in Australia and I'm in Florida. So time zones were a big thing. But thankfully, we have been able to coordinate the logistics this time around. And so before we get into the, the mole rat, your work is on the neurology of the dragonflies, right? Yeah. So like dragonfly brains, like what is it like working with the dragonfly brains? Yeah, so I do, a, I use a technique we call intracellular electrophysiology. Um, and the intracellular part refers to recording from inside the neuron. So I record from single neurons. There's really a, a lot of ways to record brain activity from um, recording whole brain uh, stuff with uh, calcium imaging and fMRI you've probably heard, heard about. But I go down to the single neuron level. And um, so I basically take a small uh, electrode, which has a tip about 5,000 times thinner than the width of human hair. And I put that into the dragonfly's brain and uh, into an individual neuron. And then I record the electrical signals that, that the neuron makes in response to visual stimuli that I'm putting on the screen. And yeah, it's a fantastic technique. I fell in love with this technique in undergrad. And 
I honestly knew nothing about dragonflies when I started in this lab, knew nothing about dragonflies, knew nothing about visual neuroscience. I was 100% drawn to the technique intracellular EFIS because it really allows you to see and hear individual spikes, which is the language of neurons. And I just thought that was so cool, the ability to go into an animal's brain and really read its mind in a literal sense. Um, it's just... We don't really understand the language yet. So even though we can read the mind, we just don't understand the language. So I'm essentially working on decoding that language, if you will. Oh, I love that. That sounds so like sci-fi, doesn't it? That sounds like something you'd see like a science fiction movie. (laughs) Yeah, it absolutely is. The technique's been around for a while, but, you know, we've made huge advances in the last hundred years and there's still so much we don't understand, so much to uncover. But that's exciting, though. That's like, that's uncharted territory. That's like prime real estate to explore. Yeah, yeah. As I said, I fell in love with this technique. And um, I definitely want to keep up with it after my PhD. Awesome. Um, I'm really excited to hear all that. And this week, we're not talking about the amazing dragonfly, even though that's really, really cool. This week, we are talking about the naked mole rat. And I'm really excited about this because this is also an animal that like, I feel is on the fringes of my knowledge like it's something that you hear about here and there but you like it's something that I don't really have a deep dive on so introduce us a little bit to our new friend the naked mole rat so the naked mole rat is sometimes known as the sand puppy which is an adorable name I I thought you would like that I love that Yeah, so so it's this burrowing rodent, uh, which is native to eastern Africa. So it's native to sort of the drier parts of the tropical grasslands of East Africa. So you can think of uh, countries like Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia, that, that all part of East Africa. And I originally fell in love with these guys, actually, from my Saturday morning cartoons when I was a kid. I think, is it Kim Possible, where there's a naked mole rat? It is Kim Possible. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> And I've I've always just had an attraction to these animals that look weird because I know underlining that weirdness are going to be some really interesting adaptations. So I've always been drawn to them and wanting to understand why do you look like that? What does that actually do for you? So that was my introduction to naked mole rats. And it turns out they are incredibly interesting animals. I've got a lot to talk about um, for effectiveness and ingenuity and even anesthetics. Um, they're so, so interesting. And also so useful uh, in terms of the medical science. I actually work in, so my lab is part of medical school and there are some people not in this school but associated with it that work on naked mole rats for clinical um, uses and we'll be able to talk about that a little bit as well. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. I'm really excited. Okay. So naked mole rat, let's get started with effectiveness. So what would you give the naked mole rat for effectiveness? I'm definitely giving them a 10 out of 10 for effectiveness. I'm really excited to hear about why, because when you look at them, they don't look that impressive. They don't. But no, so effectiveness is really the reason why I wanted to talk about them, because, yeah, they look like just these little unassuming little rodents, but they have some really fantastic adaptations uh, for effectiveness. And there are really four big ones I want to bring up. And um, sort of in this discussion, I think you're going to see a little bit of my background in physiology coming up. So the the four things I want to talk about, I'll just give a summary first. Uh, They're immune to certain forms of pain. Whoa. So they can survive oxygen loss for timescales that would kill most animals. They are resistant to cancer and they basically don't age. Those were four very surprising things you just said. (laughs) So, yeah, why don't we sort of go through these one by one and we'll start with their being immune to certain forms of pain. And scientists test pain in rodents by injecting a little bit of a salt solution uh, with a chemical compound in it into their pores, not enough to severely hurt them. But then if they're experiencing any discomfort, they'll start sort of licking their pores. And if you inject some capsaicin, which is the chemical that makes chilies hot, into a mouse's paw, it'll start licking its paw. But if you inject these into a naked mole rat's paw, it will ignore it. It won't have any response at all. And if you inject um, some acid into its paw, just a a low pH, a low amount as well, uh, into its paw, it'll ignore it as well. So they don't respond to these acid or capsaicin. But they do have some forms of pain, so they will respond to mechanical pain. So if they get a cut or abrasion, they'll uh, lick that and um, 
prefer other pores, for example. Yeah, so um, the, the reason they don't respond to injections of acid or capsaicin is because they lack neurotransmitters in their pain system that would normally respond to this kind of chemical stimuli, um, which renders them immune. And this is thought to be a mutation uh, in a particular gene that allows them to really survive in their environment. There are two possible causes. So first of all, they're feeding on really acid and capsaicin-rich foods. So naked mole rats live in these vast tunnel networks that they make underground that can be several kilometers long. And they're digging around. They very rarely go onto the surface. So most of their food is going to be roots and uh, tubers and bulbs and things like that that they dig um, from plants just under the surface. And so a lot of their food is actually very acid rich. And this is sort of an adaptation that the plants have tried to make to make themselves inedible. But then the um, naked mole rats have sort of one-upped the plants by developing this immunity to acid pain and capsaicin. So they can go ahead and eat them anyway. And the other way this really helps them is obviously if they're digging around, they're making these vast underground tunnel complexes. Um, they run into ants' nests a lot. And uh, the ants that are native to the same area of them have acid in their sort of bites. And so by being immune to pain from acid, they can sort of shrug off and ignore these ant bites and keep going about their day. So yeah, they've developed a pain insensitivity to acids and capsaicin as these adaptations to, to their environment to allow them to eat the foods that are around in their environment and uh, avoid the ants that they sort of cohabit with. <laughs> That's awesome. They literally just don't have time for pain. Yeah, yeah. They will dig into ant colonies and just keep going. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, so pretty much all of the adaptations that I'm going to talk about here for effectiveness are related to their environment and the fact that they live underground in these long uh, tunnel complexes that they make, which can be kilometers long and are very poorly ventilated. So the composition of oxygen in the air on the surface is about 21%. And that's what we humans enjoy. Uh, if we start dropping below that, we start to run into problems. But it's been measured at 2% and up to 9% in the tunnel systems that the naked mole rats are in. In the scientific literature, this is described as a really anoxic environment, um, and it basically means they have a lack of oxygen, and correspondingly, because they're still doing oxygen-based um, respiration most of the time, they have really high levels of carbon dioxide in their um, tunnel system and also in their body, in their blood. And this is, for most animals, this is a really bad situation to be in. Uh, so in humans, just a few minutes of anoxia can cause permanent brain damage. That's why it's really important to act really quickly after a stroke. And uh, yeah, so we last a couple of minutes. I think it's about five minutes. And um, we can last so long because we're so big. So exposing a typical mouse, which is around the same size, a couple of centimeters long, um, about 50 to 60, sometimes 70 uh, grams, so around the same size as, as a naked mole rat, exposing a typical mouse to 100% CO2 results in death after only 30 seconds. Uh, but naked mole rats last around 20 minutes before they show any effects at all and, and can go for 30 minutes before they suffer any kind of brain damage. And, yeah, this is really important for them uh, because they, they live in these anoxic environments in these tunnel systems they create. And they also sleep in these giant piles. So within the tunnel system, they have chambers, and these chambers can be dedicated to different things. So there's a latrine chamber, and that's where they'll all go to the toilet. And there are nesting chambers, and that's where they'll all sleep. And there are eating chambers, and that's where all the food is brought, uh, which we'll talk about a little later. But for the nesting chambers, they'll all go in there, and they're about the size of a football is the um, standard of measurement that I keep reading. So that seems to be a really common one. And you might have colonies of up to 300. The average is about 75, but up to 300, all trying to fit into one or two or a couple of these sleeping chambers. So they're really tightly packed in. And you can imagine this doesn't really leave much room for oxygen. And it's already in a low oxygen environment. So what naked mole rats are able to do is really cool. They can switch their cells from oxygen-based respiration to fructose-driven respiration. And the brain also has an altered physical response to oxygen, which is an avenue of stroke research. But in their, in their living conditions, because they sleep in these dense, tight bundles and they switch to anaerobic respiration, 
they can survive with this very low oxygen content while awake and also while sleeping for much longer. And the the thing about uh, fructose-driven aerobic respiration is it it doesn't produce as much energy, but that doesn't really matter because they tend to do it while they're sleeping anyway. But tying back into the first thing we talked about, the fructose-driven respiration produces acid as a byproduct of the chemical uh, effects. But as we spoke about, they're immune to uh, pain from acids. So this really helps them in in a number of ways, like we talked about before, but also because they're producing lots of acid when they're sleeping in their bodies, uh, this doesn't really seem to affect them. Huh. Wow. When you said that we're talking about like 300 of these to a group, I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) that's a lot more than I would have expected. Yeah. So 300 is on the larger scale. The average was about 75 in a group. Sure but they have been recorded up to 300. I don't think all 300 would be fitting in one sleeping chamber. Uh, They do spread it around uh, in a couple of sleeping chambers, but they do really like sleeping all together in these dense sort of bowls. And the the ones at the bottom just must do a fantastic job because they are oxygen deprived and they have the weight of all the others on top of them. Uh, While sleeping, they do tend to wriggle around and move around. So uh, any that are on the bottom will eventually make their way to the top. And they all sort of have a turn like that. Oh, that's just like, um, that's like penguin huddles, isn't it? How they kind of like rotate out to see who's like on the edge. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing I wanted to talk about was cancer resistance, because I find this uh, just a really fascinating one. And this is a really big part of medical research uh, at the moment. Um, But to explain this, I need to cover a little bit of cancer pathophysiology. I'll try not to get too caught up in the details. But uh, the basics is throughout life, you know, cells and organs in an organism need to be replenished as cells degrade over time or die. Um, As always, that statistic about your skin being replaced once every seven years or that similar sort of mechanism happens to all your organs except your nervous system and your musculature. And cells do this by mitosis where they're splitting and uh, replicating DNA and every now and then an error is made in the DNA replication process leading to a mutation. Uh, So this is basically also what drives uh, evolutionary development. Now, the vast majority of these mutations are meaningless. They can happen in junk DNA or they can code for uh, a difference without a distinction. So they make a difference in the DNA that doesn't actually cause a difference in the protein that's made, and it doesn't matter. But every now and again, something important has changed, and either the cell dies, or if the change is adaptive, it sticks around. And sometimes you get a mutation that allows the cell to continuously degrow and divide, ignoring the normal sort of body plan instructions. Uh, And when this happens, it results in rapid, unrestricted cellular proliferation, uh, which becomes a tumor, this mass of rapidly reproducing undifferentiated cells. And the naked mole rats have developed a number of mechanisms to try and stop this. So first they have a process called contact inhibition, uh, which also exists in humans and most animals, but naked mole rats have really fine-tuned it to a much nicer degree. And contact inhibition is basically this interaction between cells, whereas when cells get too crowded, they stop replicating. They try and stop replicating. So naked mole rats have a number of different pathways that they implement contact inhibition in their cells. So if a mutation develops immunity to one of those pathways, there's still another pathway there. And it's far, far, far more unlikely for the same mutation to result in immunity to both pathways than it is to just one. Um, So it will still get stopped by the other mechanism. And uh, in addition to this, their DNA replication is also much uh, less error-prone than in most mammals. Um, And this really isn't understood yet. So this is really the focus of intense research, trying to understand what physiological pathways allow the naked mole rats to have less errors in their DNA replication to see if we can try and get that same ability for us. Oh my gosh. So they're just like better at replicating their DNA. They're just doing a better job. And we're like, I don't know, that's all we got. <laughs> they're just they're just really yeah, good yeah, at it. 
Yeah, pretty much. So over the last week, I took a bit of a deep dive into the literature, uh, not because I wanted to go and explain it in uh, like a huge amount of depth, but because I, I was reading all these papers saying they do this, but nobody knows how. So I was looking in like the most updated papers. And I mean, there are some theories and I won't go into it because that seems like another podcast, but it's not <laughs> well understood. We really just, yeah, but it's a really fascinating avenue of research. That is, that's one of those things that makes me excited to hear about. That's, I love, I love we don't know. I love that because that just makes me feel so excited. That just means there's something new to learn. Yeah, there's always something new to learn. That's one of the reasons I love science. Mm -hmm. All right. And the last uh, thing I wanted to talk about for effectiveness is um, the fact that they don't really age, um, not in a normal sense. So in the 1800s, a British mathematician named uh, Benjamin Gompertes, I think I've probably butchered the pronunciation of that name, but oh well. Hey, you're an official member of the team now that you've messed up a pronunciation of a name. You're one of us now. (laughs) (laughs) So he developed what he called the law of mortality, uh, which is really as close as you get to a law in biology. And it basically states that an individual animal's risk of death increases exponentially over time. And it's pretty closely adhered to in most animals, especially mammals, but it doesn't actually apply to naked mole rats. And so to understand that, we need to, again, go into the physiology a little bit. So just like I was talking about before, most biological theories of aging um, focus on errors in DNA replication. And as our cells are dividing and replacing as we grow older and older, these errors build up little bit at a time, little bit at a time, and we eventually get um, degradation of organ structure and uh, function. But with naked mole rats, as I said, they they basically don't have this because they have this uh, excellent DNA replication mechanism, uh, whatever it is that we still don't understand this, that reduces error rates so they don't end up with the same degradation of structure and function that we see in mammalian tissue throughout pretty much every other animal. Exactly why? Uh, is is not really understood, as I said. Um, so, so the oldest naked mole rat recorded was about thirty five years. You know, they're not immortal; they they can still die, but it's usually from predators or injury or um, something like that. Uh, they don't really seem to die of old age like most animals, and they don't really change in behaviour with age either. Um, So once they've uh, reached adulthood, they will sort of remain in that state. The queens don't go through a menopause and uh, they don't become less good at their behavioral tasks with age. So, yeah, there's this really interesting uh, mechanism going on with their DNA replication that protects them from uh, the normal consequences of aging and a lot of age-related disease. Huh. First of all, you said the word queen, and that has my interest. So I'm assuming we're going to get back to that. But I like where that's going because, yes, that makes me think of all sorts of cool stuff. But staying on on task for right now, 35 is is very old for a rodent, right? I can't think of any other rodent that lives anywhere near that long. Yeah, I think the average lifespan for a mouse is three to four years. I'm not 100% sure on that, though. I had pet rats. I had just just regular old rats. And I want to say their life expectancy was like three to five years. And that's for a big old rat. So I don't know for like a little mouse. But um, yeah, they're not they're not known for being particularly uh, long lived. So 35 years is like, that's wild. Yeah, in biology, age is usually related to the animal's size. So you generally find uh, that uh, larger animals live longer than smaller animals. But the naked mole rats really are an outlier on this because 35 years from an animal that is a couple of centimeters and um, less than 70 grams. So, yeah, they really last a long time uh, because of this. That is actually a little bit smaller than I thought. My assumption of the naked mole rat was that they were maybe the length of, say, my hand, like maybe from like fingertip to wrist, maybe like that about about that long. But it sounds like that's not the case. <laughs> no, they are a little bit smaller. I would say they're probably the size of your palm is probably oh. a good uh, good rule of thumb. So yeah, they are a little bit smaller. They're so little. <laughs> Yeah, but if, instead of holding just one on your palm, you'll probably have them all swarming all over your arms. So. Ah, gross. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just really want to, before we move on to ingenuity, I just want to put all this together because it all comes down to their environment. So because of their ability to reduce cellular metabolism, their high-fidelity DNA replication and repair, and the fact they don't age like most animals, they're living in these um, vast underground labyrinths 
with low oxygen. Uh, they're eating highly acidic food. Um, they're producing lots of acid in their uh, metabolism because of the low oxygen. Uh, they're encountering these ants that have slightly acidic bites. So they've adapted to this with some of these fantastic biological adaptations about reduced pain sensitivity to acid, uh, reduced need for oxygen and ways of getting around low oxygen and um, cellular and DNA repair. Because uh, another thing is that acid in tissue tends to promote mutations in DNA replication. So all that acid they're generate, they're getting from their food and they're generating from their oxygen-less respiration would normally, and in any other mammal, would be causing mutations to skyrocket. But because of these DNA replication uh, mechanisms that they have, we don't see that in them. So it all really comes together to this low oxygen, acid-rich environment. And they've developed a set of fantastic adaptations to that that then serve them in these many different ways. That's almost like creative that all of these different solutions that they've come up with over the over the millions of years that they've been evolving, like to come up with like thriving in a super hostile environment that I think a lot of animals would have just been like, you know what, I don't think I'm going to do that. Actually, I'm just going to head back up to the surface. But they were like, no, we're going to yeah. power through it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So they don't they don't spend much of their time on the surface at all, um, because that's where most of their predators are. So I mentioned that that sometimes they can be killed by predators. So when they are on the surface, they'll be targeted by raptors and canids, and uh, sometimes predators like snakes will come into their burrows. Um, so they tend to stay away from the surface. But obviously, since they're doing a lot of digging uh, and they're trying to make room, they do have to excavate that dirt. So they do need to take all the dirt up to the surface and um, and leave it out there. And that is when they're at their most vulnerable. Makes so sense. So don't like it, and they will very quickly scurry back underground. I would too. That's yeah. a comfort zone. <laughs> yes. I Wow, that's mind-blowing because I, I didn't know a lot of that. I had, like, heard – about this whole idea that like mole rats never get cancer, but I thought it was one of those things where like there was a myth going around that like sharks never get cancer and that ended up not being true. Like, I thought it was one of those like weird rumors that you hear floating around, but wild. Yeah. <laughs> mole rats have got yeah. it figured out. So in, in the records that I was able to find, no wild mole rat has ever been found with cancer. But some mole rats in zoos do develop cancer because they're housed in a far more oxygen-rich environment in a zoo just because it's basically impossible to have an exhibit in a zoo on the surface where visitors can see that have such low oxygen levels because it would need to be, you know, sealed really tightly and, yeah, just, just really hard to do. So naked mole rats in zoos are exposed to far higher than normal oxygen levels and oxygen also drives mutation. Um, so some naked mole rats have been found with cancers in zoos, but it's still at a lower rate than other animals. But um, no naked mole rat has been found wild with cancer. That, of course, doesn't mean they don't get it. You know, we haven't checked every naked mole rat ever to have existed, but it, they've certainly got it at very low levels. I love that. Wow. They really have this market cornered. They're doing a great job. A plus. Good job, naked mole rats. So for effectiveness, they have the game pretty much on lock. So for ingenuity, which if this is your first time joining us on this show, we define ingenuity as behavioral adaptations that let an animal do a good job of the things that it's trying to do or solving the problems it encounters or figuring things out or coming up with strategies. So what do you give the naked mole rat for ingenuity? So this was a really hard one to do, actually. I ended up giving them a seven. Okay. Okay. That's decent. Yeah, decent. They're, they are pretty good. They have some really interesting things that I, that I want to talk about, um, but they lack a lot of the behavioral characteristics that we typically associate with intelligent animals. And I'll talk about that a little bit too. Um, but I want to start with their social system um, because I feel like social systems fits into ingenuity. Mm -hmm. But um, yes, I, I slipped my tongue earlier and mentioned queens, which, which got you interested. So they are one of the only eusocial mammals. And eusocial is the social system that you typically think of when you're thinking of bees and ants and termites. They have a queen, uh, which is the reproductive female, and a couple of male consorts, usually three to four, that help with the reproduction. And the rest of the colony are these um, workers or soldiers fitting into these other roles 
that are not reproductive um, that will go out and pretty much just like in bees or ants, some of them will go out and forage looking for food. These are the ones that are expanding the underground labyrinth and finding food and then bringing all of the food that they find back to the feeding chambers. So because food is so scarce, any individual naked mole rat that goes out to forage is pretty unlikely to find anything. So any that do find food will bring it back to the feeding chambers and then the whole colony will get to feed. And you've also got the uh, soldiers who are a little bit bigger and they sort of are the ones that stay closer to the surface entrances and they're pretty much on the guard for uh, snakes. So the, the burrows they make are too small for any raptors or canids to try and get in. So they're really only a problem when an echinal rat's gone onto the surface. But snakes will find their way into the burrow system sometimes and the soldiers will make alarm calls, letting the rest of the colony know, and then they will go and grab the pups and uh, take them away and try and hide while the soldiers will sort of band together and try and block the tunnel and present this like front of, of teeth. They have these fantastic large, teeth that make up sort of about three quarters of their face um, <laughs> and try and ward off the snakes. It seems like they all have very defined roles for themselves. And I think when like you get specialized where each one has like a certain job, I think that really kind of adds a different dimension to it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. And um, I, I, you know, I talked a lot about in effectiveness about these biological adaptations that I really enjoy. But my favorite thing about the naked mole rats is in ingenuity. And I, I want to tell it to you in narrative form. <laughs> Oh boy, we get it's it's story time. Everybody gather around. Everybody gather around. Take a seat on the mat. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so this is my favorite dinner party story, and all my friends listening to this are rolling their eyes because they've heard this a hundred times. I bring it up any chance I get. So to tell this story, we need to go back to sometime in the 1950s, the 1960s, when the science of studying animal behavior was really just in its infancy. It was just getting started. There were, you know, the behaviorists in America and the ethologists in Europe. And one of the big theories about animal behavior at the time was that all animals always act for the betterment of the species, which by now we know isn't quite right, but that was the, the state-of-the-art theory back in the 50s and 60s. And then the, um, the first ethologists to come across the naked mole rats and start studying them found something really weird. So there was a, a caste of workers that didn't really seem to do anything. So they weren't the foragers and diggers. They didn't go around digging. They didn't find and bring back food. They didn't defend the nest. Whenever a soldier would call an alarm, they would uh, run away. Um, and they didn't even really take uh, the pups either. And in addition to this, they got the first cuts of the food and they ate a lot. So in some instances, they even ate before the queen did and before uh, the pups were fed. So they would just hang around the feeding chambers, eating and eating, and they would eat a lot. And so they got um, essentially morbidly obese uh, to the point where sometimes they even had physiological um, side effects related to obesity and you would say they were unhealthy. Um, and this caused a real stir in the scientific um, circles in the 60s because people were asking, well, first of all, why are they doing this? And why is the rest of the colony letting them get away with it? They are basically freeloaded. They are don't participate in the foraging. They don't participate in expanding the colony. They don't participate in defending the colony. They get the first cut of food and they eat more than everyone else. So, so why was this really being allowed? Um, this was dynamite to 1960s science. You had researchers at each other's throats, publicly uh, slandering each other in lectures. It was the scientific fights of the um, early parts of science are hilarious to read. And if you go and read some of the early papers in this field, you'll see people like, um, you know, claws out at each other. These distinguished professors lampooning each other all the time. But it left this really big question of why is this particular case allowed to behave like this? What, what is the colony getting from it and what are they getting from it? Um, and the answer came a few years later. Um, and to understand it, you need to know that Africa has an annual monsoon season. And so nobody really wants to do field work in uh, monsoons. So most of the naked mole rat uh, behavioral observations in the native habitats was done in the dry season until uh, one day some researchers decided to check it out during the monsoons. So the, um, the East African monsoons are really 
deadly. There's heavy rains for weeks, widespread flooding of the grasslands, and um, this is flooding of these grasslands that the naked mole rats are making their homes under. And this is where that those sort of lazy naked mole rats come in, uh, because what they do when the rains come and the ground starts getting flooded is they will back up into the surface tunnels of the colony using their size to literally body block the tunnels so that they don't get flooded. And they will sit there for weeks on end. Um, and during this time, the other mole rats will bring them food. They will sit there sticking their bums out onto the surface um, and blocking it up so they don't get flooded. And they're also pretty vulnerable from predators as well. And so, yeah, they'll sit there for days or weeks while the rest of the colony remains underground in this sort of sealed labyrinth. And this is where um, low dependency on oxygen can come in really useful as well. Um, and so that's why for the rest of the year, this particular case gets to eat first and they do nothing because when the monsoons come, they are the ones that save the whole colony. They're the ones sticking their bums out into the cold waters uh, for predators to come and nibble on. Oh my gosh, they're getting strategically chubby. Yeah. They're, ge they're getting chunky on purpose. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Like they know, they're like, the plumper and the rounder I get, the better I'm going to be at protecting my colony. So I'm going to yeah. take one for the team and get super fat. Yeah, so this is my favorite story about naked mole rats. And to be honest, when I first suggested talking about naked mole rats, I had that story on my brain. That is, this is pretty much why I want to talk about naked mole rats. Everyone who is ever going to meet me at a party from now on is going to be cursing your name for telling me this story <laughs> because it's now my dinner party story. <laughs> so you, you are welcome to share it. Wow, that's a doozy. That's very good. Yeah, so um, there's a little bit more I want to talk about for ingenuity. So as I said, they lack many of the characteristics that we would usually associate with intelligent animals, especially when you compare it to something like a common rat. And despite so despite being highly social, they have a relatively simple language. And I think this may in part be due to a lack of research. So other rats are studied a lot more, so have had a lot more chances to sort of show their stuff. Um, but it could also be driven by the fact that naked mole rats have a smaller than average brain and probably the fact their underground life doesn't provide many opportunities to display their intelligence. But they do have a few cool things that I want to mention but don't quite fit into the story. Um, so as I mentioned before, the food in the underground is scarce. So they have bulbs, roots and tubers, uh, which they share as a colony, um, bringing it back to the feeding chambers. Um, but they can also sustainably farm from these large tubers that they find underground. So as I said, the naked mole rats are about a couple of centimetres and, and these tubers are huge. So I think they're about 20 to 30 centimetres big, about 30 kilograms. And what the naked mole rats will do when they find these things is they won't actually remove it from the plant. Instead, they'll sort of bore a hole in the side. They'll get inside of the underground tuber and they'll eat the nutrient-rich flesh inside while leaving the sort of outer husk. And then once they've taken everything out, they will back out and they will plug it up with soil and they'll allow it to regrow um, so they can come back later once it's regrown and they can harvest it again. And sometimes the same tubers can feed uh, a naked mole rat colony for a couple of years because they will just keep allowing it to regrow and coming back. So it turns out that naked mole rats can have their tuber and eat it too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, they're little farmers. They've got a little agriculture going on under there. Yeah, it's fantastic. The other thing I wanted to mention is that, so they're ectothermic, so they're cold-blooded, which is really weird for a mammal. Uh, it doesn't really mean their blood gets cold. It just means they don't self-regulate their blood temperature like uh, most other mammals do. So instead, they build their nests in such a way as to create these thermal gradients in the different chambers, and they'll have several basking chambers at different levels. So they can essentially choose how warm they want to be and go to a basking chamber of the appropriate level. That is interesting because, first of all, that that they're even cold-blooded. Like, because I'm, I'm trying to think, I think I remember us talking about one other mammal that couldn't thermoregulate, sloths. It was sloths that didn't quite thermoregulate themselves. Just very interesting that, especially living underground where they're not going to be warmed by the sun. Like, I, yeah. I wouldn't have expected them to have developed that 
when they're not getting warmth from the sun. So I, I had a bit of a read into the uh, the background of the cold-bloodedness. It's not really known exactly when or how or why they developed this. I think the most advanced theory that I read or the most um, widely accepted theory that I read was that it was a result of inbreeding. So uh, naked mole rats can be very, very vicious to each other. There's a particular, there's another particular case that I haven't talked about, which actually they're basically born and then leave the colony as soon as possible and go out and search for another colony. But aside from that particular case, naked mole rats will uh, kill members of another colony. So they end up with a lot of inbreeding. And it's thought that at some point uh, the cold-bloodedness came in, not so much as an environmental adaptation, but as a result of inbreeding and just um, got sort of stuck in the gene pool and never went away. So they've then adapted to that. But I don't think that's fully fully understood or fully settled. So I don't want to say it with um, super certainty. That's just, yeah, the, the most sort of widely accepted theory that I've read. Now, I think that what a lot of people probably think of when they think of the naked mole rat is just kind of their whole visual appearance situation, like the whole being completely hairless. Um, and that's some people's jam. It's not other people's jam. So I want to know your opinion and what you would give the naked mole rat for aesthetics. So I'm going to give them a six. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I do find them cute. I do find them really cute looking. Um, and I find, to be honest, I find all animals behaving adorable. I watch flies and find them cute and adorable. Um, but as I mentioned before, I really like weird looking animals because I know that that weirdness is going to lead to a specialized adaptation and that I want to go and understand that. <laughs> So weirdness is kind of attractive to me, and that's one of the reasons why I was initially attracted to naked mole rats. But again, just because the weirdness is attractive, does that mean they get higher aesthetics? Because I don't necessarily, you know, it's it's hard to operationalize that exactly. Um, so yeah, when I say a weird looking animal, my thoughts are, that's cool. I wonder why it looks like that. So with naked mole rats, they have, you know, really reduced eyes and really reduced ears, um, which looks quite weird, but that's because they live underground in the dark. They don't really rely on those sensory systems. They have um, much more emphasis on tactile sensation and olfactory sensation. Um, and this also may be why their brain is smaller than average, smaller than other rodents and smaller than other animals of the same size, because they don't need a visual cortex or an auditory cortex because they don't rely on those sensory systems. So, you know, why spend the metabolic energy developing and maintaining uh, that part of your nervous system if, if you're not going to rely on it? The first thing that people probably think of uh, with naked mole rats is the fact that they lack fur and they have this um, pink skin. And there's a really great story about this. When naked mole rats were first discovered uh, in the 19th century by, I believe, by a French naturalist, um, he actually thought the colony that he had come across was entirely elderly oh. <laughs> um, because they all lacked hair and had the wrinkled skin. So he thought that it was entirely elderly and that he had scared off all the young ones when he approached. And they'd all run off and, and left the elderly to die. So he developed a, a hatred of them because they were so cowardly that they wouldn't um, defend their elderly. That is very on brand for like the old school naturalists that would just like yeah. come up with some absolutely wild guess and then yeah. just be so firm in their beliefs on it. Be like, listen, I just made this up off the top of my head, but I will die on this hill. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, so I, I had a look into um, why they got their lack of fur and, and their pink skin. So um, the lack of fur is, again, thought to be initially because of inbreeding. Um, but because they live in these warm underground tunnels, um, they have really no need for our fur to keep warm or to protect them from the sun. So another thing fur does for surface mammals is provide um, some sun protection. But because they spend most of their time underground, they don't actually need that. And it ends up it is quite adaptive um, because with no fur, they have reduced parasites because there's nothing for parasites to hide in and to latch on and, and nest in and grab onto. So it ends up working out well for them, I think, even though it looks a bit weird. Although they, they do have hair inside their mouth and down their throat. Why? 
this is to catch the dirt as they dig because they're digging with these large front teeth. So their lips curl around behind the teeth and try and form a seal, but it's not perfect. So some dirt still gets in and that is caught by the hair in their mouth and their throat. So they don't swallow it. It's pretty much the same reason we have hair in our noses. It's just to catch any of that particulate matter and prevent them from swallowing it. Gross, but sure, yeah, like whatever works for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first thought that came into my head when I read that was, oh, thanks, I hate it. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. And I'm thinking like, oh, they just took all of the hair off of the outside of their body and put it on the inside. (laughs) They've just reallocated it. I don't think it's quite that density, but um, (laughs) that'd be something, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I was talking to to Christian just, I, in fact, I think it was for our like Q&A episode that we just did, where he mentioned that he is made uncomfortable by the appearance of hairless cats, which have that same like pink wrinkly skin. But in hairless cats, it's a little smoother. I feel like naked mole rats have kind of a bumpier sort of look to them. Yeah, they're sort of a lot more wrinkled. Yeah. Um, and so I asked him, I said, do you feel the same way about naked mole rats? He said, no, not really. I was like, what? What? <laughs> what is your deal? Um, but they do have that same sort of look. I'm of the opposite mind where I think it looks much cuter on cats. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just my domestic bias. I like Mexican hairless dogs. I like them too. But that might be because I have had the opportunity to meet one in person. And, oh, wow. and like pet it a little bit, which is weird. It's it's very strange to feel because they have. So first of all, their skin is extremely hot. Like it's very, mm-hmm. very warm to touch. And then second of all, like they have just a little bit of this very, very fine hair. And so it almost feels like you're touching maybe somebody's arm, it, it, but their arm is very hot. So it feels really weird and it's a little bit creepy, but I did get to meet them in person. So maybe I have like a little bit of a bias towards the hairless dog and I've never had a chance to actually see a naked mole rat in person. So maybe the the scales would be tipped in their favor if I got to meet one. Yeah, maybe. I said before we started recording that our, our zoo had an exhibit for naked mole rats at some point, but it has been empty for quite some time. And and now that you have said that zoo zoo naked mole rats do not do very well, I'm I'm now guessing that that's probably why the naked mole rats probably did not thrive and they had to uh, clear them out of that exhibit. But I've never gotten a chance to see one in person. I would really like to, though. Yeah, yeah, I I haven't actually seen one in person either. I'd really love to uh, do some research on them someday. Fingers crossed. Well, um, so speaking of, you know, uh, future research and things like that, this is a good chance to start to wrap up by talking about things that you're currently involved with and things that you're working on now and anything that you want people to kind of know about. Yeah, well, um, at the moment, I'm desperately trying to finish off my uh, PhD. So it is um, the end of the dragonfly recording season in Australia. So I am desperately trying to get as much data as I can. And yeah, so at the moment, I am studying selective attention in the dragonfly, which um, I think you spoke quite extensively about in the dragonfly episode. So rather than recapping that, I'll just refer any uh, interested listeners who haven't heard that episode to go back and listen to that episode to learn all about it. And I have a couple of ideas for where I want to go after I've finished up my PhD in this lab. So I've really fallen interested um, fallen in love with this idea of the confusion effect, uh, which I think I, I may have mentioned, but just briefly, that that's basically predatory animals um, see a, a drop in catch success rate when they're hunting swarms of prey. And so I'm really interested in, in what's going on with the representation of targets in the visual system when this happens. So I'd really like to study that in zebrafish because we can do whole brain recordings from zebrafish with calcium imaging. So that'd be cool. And maybe in a couple of years, I'll be able to come on and do a zebrafish episode once I've um, brought up some expertise in that. But the other interesting idea I have is there's a local bat colony um, just near my university. Um, Actually, if I put the phone out the window, you could probably hear them. Um, And these are bats that are native to Australia. They're native to the East Coast, but they're not native to this part of Australia. They actually migrated down here about 10 years ago after there was a a massive cyclone that really destroyed a lot of their habitat in uh, New South Wales, I think. And they 
all migrated down here. And they formed as super colonies. So this species of bat, the, the gray-headed flying fox, usually roost in colonies of a few thousand. But we've got a super colony here that's about 20 to 30,000 by last count. So much bigger than normal colonies. And also in the middle of the city rather than being in the middle of the sort of tropical rainforest. So I'm really interested to understand how how they've adapted to an urban environment and uh, especially with their navigation. So, um, yeah, maybe in a couple of years, if not if not the uh, zebrafish, maybe I'll be on to talk about the grey-headed flying fox. Although I think you've done a fox episode with the pollinators. It was uh, it was the Malayan flying fox. It would still be interesting to talk about, like you said, like the way that they would have adapted into flying around in, in an urban environment. I'm sure there's a lot to be said there. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's another really interesting line of research. Um, so I'm not really sure exactly where I'm going to end up post-PhD. I'm kind of mostly just thinking about um, getting this all done and dusted. But yeah, I have a couple of ideas I would really like to go on with. So um, yeah, hopefully I'll get back to you in a few years uh, with something else. Awesome. And if people um, who are listening want to keep tabs on what you've been up to uh, or, you know, kind of keep an eye on what you work on going forward, where can we find you? So I'm on Twitter at Benjamin underscore Lancer. And I I tweet about cool animal facts I come across in my readings. I I tweet about my data and uh, the science I'm doing. I also do a lot of wildlife photography. So if you like pictures of uh, Australian animals, then I post a lot of those that I take as well. So I'm generally pretty active on there. And if anyone wants to contact me uh, because you've got a question you want to ask about anything, um, dragonflies or naked mole rats or neuroscience in general, I'm uh, yeah more than happy to respond to uh, DMs or tweets or anything like that. Perfect. Well, Thank you so much. This has been amazing. I don't know what I expected going into talking about naked mole rats, but it definitely wasn't that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, very thrilled, very impressed. So just thank you so much for spending all this time with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. I've been looking forward to it for the past month or so. And um, yeah, it's also been really nice to uh, do the research for it. I should probably just give a, a note of my sources as well. Um, but it's been very nice to do the research and take a moment to step away from the dragonflies that I've been sort of in depth in the for the past three, four years. So it's been so nice to have something else <laughs> to think about for a while. A, a little distraction. That's what I feel like working on this podcast has been for me, just a distraction from the world. <laughs> you, yeah. just, just, you can just escape into doing some research on a cool animal for a few hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, much appreciated. I'm so thankful for your time and I'm thankful for all the awesome research you did. I'm thrilled. So um, we will talk to you next time, maybe about a zebrafish or a flying fox. Maybe. I look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.